0: to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. You've never guessed, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am a stand-up comedian that you have not heard of based in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland. And I have a thing It's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the beautiful city of Edinburgh. I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about Robert the Bruce's son, King David II, and you know what, that tells you everything that you really need to know about David II, you know, the fact that I introduced him as Robert the Bruce's son, and not, I don't know, David the Bruce, David never earned the, you know, he was never the Bruce like his dad, and I bet right up until his death at the age of 47, people probably still referred to him as... Bruce's laddie, you know, which is, which is a shame, because it's not easy living up to a father's expectations, I know that personally, because I recently had to tell my own dad that I don't like cycling, or the Eagles, and you know, the poor guy, he was crestfallen, and that's my dad, you know, like, he's, he's a nobody, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's a big deal in, in Bridge, but imagine being Robert the Bruce's son, like, those are Big boots to fill, ladies and gentlemen. Like that's that's like being Alex Ferguson's laddie. You know, like your dad's the most successful Scottish king that has ever been, and you're managing Peterborough United, or whatever gammon town in England that Darren Ferguson is the manager of. You know, like at least someone like George Best took the heat off of his laddie by being a raging alcoholic, you know? Listen, if this is the first time that you have listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect. All right, I'm not going to lie to you, it's mainly Scottish history mixed in with a lot of Tory bashing. and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your sort of thing, you're going to have a good time. Um, if this is the first time that you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, can I suggest you go back to episode one? All the episodes go in chronological order. I don't really talk about anything topical on the podcast. The one the one that you listen to will give you a bit of background and information, the one that then precedes it. So, uh, yeah, so go back to the start if this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast. Uh, Right, and there we go. So, without further ado, here is your podcast, folks, all about King David II. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! David II descended to the throne after the death of his father, who was Robert the Bruce, don't you know, Uh, in June 1329. And despite only being five years old when he became king, David had already been married for a year. He was married in July 1328 to Edward III's seven-year-old sister Joan. They got married at Berwick. And the two children, they then took up residence at Turnbury Castle in Ayrshire where they were living as the Earl and the Countess of Carrick before Robert the Bruce's death and David's ascension to the throne. Settled down, married, and with a dead parent at five years old is about right. For anyone living in Ayrshire, to be fair, right? And Turnberry, incidentally, is uh, is where Donald Trump has one of his Scottish golf courses. And that is not the only thing that Donald Trump has got in in common with David and Joan because he too is a count. You know, he is a massive, massive count. David would face an extremely eventful childhood as King of Scotland. He was anointed at Scone in November 1331 and throughout his childhood he'd be passed between lots of Different guardians, like, kind of like one of Boris Johnson's children. Mostly, though, David's problems would lie with the formidable Edward III, who was determined to make his reign as difficult as possible. Edward III, he wanted to win back the gains that his grandfather Edward I had made in Scotland, gains that had been lost by his father Edward II, or more accurately, won back by Robert the Bruce. Edward III, he took control of his kingdom in 1330 at the age of 18, and he immediately had his mother Isabella and her lover Roger Mortimer deposed. Uh, Isabella was sent to Castle Rising in Norfolk, where she stayed until her death in 1358, and Roger Mortimer, he was hanged, drawn and quartered for the horrific murder and the usurpation of Edward II's throne. Now, Edward III, he immediately denounced the, inverted comma shameful peace achieved by the Treaty of Edinburgh stroke Northampton, which had been signed under his, His name in 1328. Edward claimed it was void as it had been signed against his will when he was underage. He was determined to reconquer Scotland and he vowed that never again would England be defeated by a small country like Scotland and to be fair to the guy he was absolutely right because now England is only ever beaten by big countries you know such as uh, such as Iceland. Robert Bruce had achieved the impossible. At the beginning of David II's reign, Scotland was an independent kingdom that was recognised both by England and by the Pope, and being loved by both England and the Pope is something that only Terry Wogan has achieved since. It was a remarkable achievement, and Scotland's status as a free and independent nation, it was supposed to be cemented by the marriage of David and Joan, bringing together the Scottish and English royal families in harmony. Of course, it didn't work out that way. Scotland, at the time or at the beginning of David II's reign, it was full of confidence and it was desperately wanting peace after years and years of war. But as soon as Bruce died, things they began to unravel. Pretty much all of Scotland's most prominent and most powerful nobles. These were the freedom fighters who had been Robert the Bruce's right-hand men. They died shortly after his death. Men such as James Douglas, Walter Stewart, the steward, Sir Thomas Randolph, William Lamberton, the Bishop of St Andrews. They all died at the same time or within a few years of Robert Bruce. Who knows, maybe they're all connected to the kind of 14th century equivalent of... Jeffrey Epstein, who knows? And David, he wouldn't have any of these great men to steer him through his minority. The governance of Scotland was in the hands of the community of the realm which was headed up by its guardian, John Randolph, the Earl of Murray, and after his death in 1332 by Donald, the Earl of Marl, the Earl of Mar. sorry. David's minority, it was wrought with danger, there were power-hungry nobles circling, Edward III had just begun his personal reign, and most bizarrely of all, the deposed king John Balliol's son, Edward Balliol, he returned to Scotland from France to make a claim on the Scottish throne for himself. Edward Balliol, he came onto the scene in Scotland singing, Oh, I am Balliol, I am Edward Balliol, and I am here to reclaim the throne. But Edward Balliol's political comeback in Scotland, well, it was about as welcome as when the Better Together campaign reanimated Gordon Brown to tell us all to vote no because of the pledge, a promise to give everyone in Scotland free furniture polish if they voted no in the independence referendum. Now, Edward Balliol, he was supported by Edward III, the English king, and the disaffected English and Scottish nobles who had been disinherited by Robert the Bruce for not coming within his peace within a year of the November 1313 Parliament in Dundee. These nobles, they were known as the disinherited, and they launched an invasion of 88 ships from the Humber and landed in Kinghorn and Fife, unopposed on the 6th of August 1332, before marching towards Perth. The Earl of Mar was waiting for them. He had amassed a sizable army and set up on the Duplin Moor near Perth to stop Baliol's advance. But despite superior numbers, on the 8th of August 1332, at the Battle of Duplin Moor, it would... It was a disastrous defeat for the Scots army. In blazing sunshine, the Scottish Childrons had to charge uphill to attack the English, and they got into a massive melee as they did so. They were more clogged than Alex Salmon's arteries, and into this massive spearmen, volleys of English longbow arrows hailed down. Exhausted, the Shilterns were then wiped out by Balliol's reserves and the Scots army was defeated. Although I personally don't think it's fair to make Scottish people fight in blazing sunshine. It gives the other side a, a massive advantage. Do you know what I mean? Like as soon as it gets above 15 degrees in this country, we are required by law to go taps off. Do you know what I mean? There would have been more pasty white chebs on that battlefield than a beach in Benidorm. And it's it's pretty easy to kill everyone when they've got their tops off. You know, when they've got their boobs out and they armour on. Nearly 2,000 Scottish spearmen were killed, as was the Earl of Mar, along with two earls, several lesser noblemen, and 60 knights. That is more knights killed than a Netflix box set. Duplin Moor was an embarrassing defeat for the new independent kingdom of Scotland. It had fallen at the very first blow, and it seemed that Scotland was to fall to the English once again. Edward Balliol had himself crowned king on the 24th of September, 1332, at Scone, while young David II was in Dumbarton Castle. The country now had two kings, the legitimate David II and the usurper Edward Balliol. In November 1332, Edward Balliol swore fealty to Edward III as Lord Superior of Scotland and he ceded southern Scotland to the English crown. Edward III would rule southern Scotland while Edward Balliol ruled the north of Scotland in his name as a vassal king. Edward Balliol's only hope of running the country was by becoming London's whipping boy, happy to make Scotland a province of England for his own personal gain, the modest Operandi of the Scottish Conservative Party, a usurper, a civil war, and Scotland, a province of England. It was back where it had started in 1306, but Scotland was by no means finished. This was not 1306. The new guardian, after the death of Earl, uh, after the death of the Earl of Mar was Sir Andrew Murray, the son of the Andrew Murray who had masterminded the Scottish victory at the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. Andrew Murray was David II's uncle. He was married to Robert the Bruce's sister, Christian, and he would lead the Scots into this new phase of the Wars of Independence alongside John Randolph, who was the son of the great general in the first Wars of the Scottish Independence, Sir Thomas Randolph, the man who had successfully masterminded the siege of Edinburgh Castle and the king's uncle, Robert Stuart, who was the son of the, the famous Walter Stuart the steward, and who would go on to become the, the future Robert II, King of Scotland. Basically, the second wars of Scottish independence were being fought by the sons of the men who had fought the first wars, and it's probably why they're not as well remembered, you know what I mean? Like, sequels tend to be that little bit shiter than the originals, you know, and they, were, they just they were just that little bit shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, think about it. The only thing worse than Donald Trump being president would be if one of those kind of weird, moon-faced, rhinoceros-hunting fucking offspring of his became president, you know? King Edward Balliol, he only managed three months, which, um, I mean, even by Watford manager standards would be considered a pretty short reign. The Scots, they launched a surprise raid on his residence in Annan on the 17th of December 1332. Annan is a town right on the border between Scotland and England. Balliol had been hanging out there like that kid who would always hang about the den when you played Tig. a shite back. He scarpered over the border to Carlisle riding bareback, um, Boris Johnson's preferred riding method. Dressed only in his underwear like Boris Johnson being caught cheating on his missus again. And in May 1333, Edward III, he marched north to assist the floundering Edward Balliol. And in return, Balliol, he ceded the town of Berwick to England. Berwick is a a town that's in the north of England that has swapped between England and Scotland at least 13 times. Basically, if Rod Stewart was a town, he would be Berwick. Robert the Bruce, he had won the town back for Scotland from England in 1318 and so Edward III, he began a siege of Berwick Castle and he, he cheerily had the governor of Berwick Castle's son, sons, I should say, executed in full view of the defenders of the castle which required a Piri Patel level of cold-bloodedness. On the 12th of July, a deal was reached with the governor of Berwick Castle that should a Scottish force not arrive to relieve the castle within a week, then the castle would be surrendered to the English. Sir Andrew Mirry, he had been captured while attacking Balliol in Roxburgh, and so it fell to Archibald, Lord Douglas, the brother of the great James Douglas, Robert the Bruce's right-hand man, the man who had taken his embalmed heart on crusade to quickly muster a Scottish army to relieve Berwick Castle. The battle for Berwick was fought on the 19th of July 1333 and it was a reverse of Bannockburn. This time it was the Scots who had to relieve the castle by the end of the day or it would be surrendered to the English. Edward III and Edward Balliol, they set up in Halliden Hill, a good defensive and offensive position commanding the approaches to Berwick. The Scots army, led by Archibald Douglas, had superior numbers, around 13,000 spearmen, 1,200 knights, but the onus was on them to attack to make the deadline. At noon, the Scots launched into a disorderly mass charge and quickly got bogged down in the wet ground at the foot of Halladon Hill. The Scots army had somehow not learnt after the Battle of Duplin Moor that running uphill with a massive fucking spear isn't a particularly good battle tactic. Again, the English longbows caused massive damage before once again the English cavalry came crashing down the hill, wiping out the exhausted Scots spearmen. Archibald Douglas was killed in the battle, as were the earls of Ross, Sutherland and Carrick, along with 70 barons, thousands of spearmen and around 500 knights. The English only lost 14 men in the Battle of Halladon Hill. They had avenged the loss at Bannockburn. Halliden Hill was one of the worst in Scotland's long line of military disasters. England now occupied Berwick and Edward Balliol was reinstalled as Edward III's puppet king in Scotland. Edward III took the title of Lord Paramount of Scotland and all of the disputed lands and castles of southern Scotland fell into English hands. After the humiliation at the Battle of Halliden Hill, the position of David II's supporters was so perilous that David and Joan were sent to France for their safety... Under the protection of the French King Philippe IV, David stayed in France for seven years while war continued to rage in Scotland. And the fortunes of the war, they swung back and forth under a succession of different guardians until Andrew Murray was eventually ransomed and headed up the resistance as guardian once again. And under his leadership, the resistance against Edward Balliol's adherents and the might of the English flourished. Murray won back most of Scotland's key fortresses one by one and he dismantled the English occupation of Scotland. It was classic Andy Murray really, do you know what I mean? Like go away for a bit and then launch an unexpected comeback. The turning point came on the 30th November 1335 at the Battle of Calbleen, a fight for the fate of Kildrummy Castle on Deeside. Caldrummy was once a common stronghold and was now held by those loyal to David II. Edward Baliol he appointed David of Strathbogie, whose father, the Earl of Athol, had been disinherited by Robert the Bruce, in charge of taking the castle for Edward Baliol. The castle was on the point of surrender when Andrew Murray arrived in the nick of time and destroyed Strathbogie's army in a brilliant in a brilliant guerrilla attack. And after Murray's success at Calbline, Balliol, he struggled to hold on to power in Scotland. And despite annual expeditions into Scotland by Edward III, his grip on power north of the border, it was beginning to loosen. It's at this point in the second wars of Scottish independence, we meet one of the most charismatic and flamboyant heroines of the wars uh, Agnes Dunbar or the Black Agnes as she was known as on account of her dark complexion which being Scottish probably meant that her skin tone was just a notch above translucent you know Uh, although the English army uh, when fighting Agnes they did use excessive over-the-top and quite unnecessary force against her so I'm assuming that they must have taken the black part quite literally now, Agnes, she was the Countess of Dunbar, the daughter of the brilliant Thomas Randolph and the sister of the first guardian of David II, the Earl of Mary, John Randolph. Agnes was married to Patrick, the Earl of Dunbar, and when, on the 13th of February, 1338, an English expeditionary force led by the Earl of Salisbury began to siege Dunbar Castle, the responsibility for the castle's defence it fell to Agnes. And Agnes's flamboyant and brilliant defence of Dunbar Castle has gone down in history as something of folklore and legend. The siege of Dunbar Castle would go on for four months. Imagine that, eh? Being trapped inside your house for months upon end. Impossible to imagine in 2020, I know, right? Right. Now Dunbar Castle is located uh, on the East Lothian coastline in the town, well the town of Dunbar now. Um, it's a ruin in the Victorian harbour at Dunbar, not much of the castle remains. Um, but Dunbar Castle, it was, it was a near impossible castle to attack from the land. Salisbury, he had to send for special siege equipment to be sent from the Tower of London. Huge catapults called mignolets and a massive battering ram known as the sow. Um, Although ramming a saw is, you know, sounds more like a job for David Cameron, doesn't it? Now, every time the castle was battered by the catapults, Agnes and the ladies of the castle would go out onto the ramparts and flamboyantly dust away the debris with their handkerchiefs, just taking the utter pish out of the English army, and when the soul battered the walls, Agnes rained down lumps of masonry from the parapets. Salisbury eventually gave up trying to batter the castle into submission, and he was content on waiting to starve the castle out, but Agnes then arranged for an audacious clandestine resupply of the castle through a secret sea door. One of the guerrilla leaders of the resistance or the Scottish resistance was Sir Alexander Ramsay, and he commandeered some fishing boats from the small ports in the 4th and he loaded them with provisions for the castle, it being Dunbar it was you know, mainly avocados and disguised as fishing boats they managed to slip through the English naval blockade and successfully resupplied the castle. The siege had cost Edward III by this point an utter fortune and by the time Salisbury eventually gave up in the June of 1338, Andrew Murray had won back control of most of Scotland and Agnes Dunbar had successfully distracted the English forces to her castle in Dunbar and would forever go on to be one of the the heroes of the Second Wars of Scottish Independence. Edward III was frustrated at the cost of the Scottish War and he was growing impatient. His mind was on bigger things, most notably his claim to the French throne through his mother Isabella, who was the daughter of Philippe IV and the sister of Charles IV. In July 1338, Edward III set sail with 115 ships for France. It would be the first of many attacks in the beginning of the 100 Years' War, which actually lasted 116 years. Well, it was 100 years and 116 Colombo years. I don't know, maybe that's what they were fighting about. Who knows? Uh, anyway, I'm told that Prince Philip is actually a veteran of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like uh, Prince Andrew just absolutely loves listening to his dad's stories about Joan of Arc. You know, he kind of get enough of them, mainly because they're stories about a teenage girl. Do you know what I mean? And anything about teenage girls, Prince Andrew's right into. You can. Anyway, with Edward III preoccupied with France and Scotland having been won back by the great Andrew Murray, the country could breathe a sigh of relief and in 1341 it was deemed safe enough for David II and his Queen Joan to return to Scotland once again. Sir Andrew Murray died in 1338 and he was replaced as guardian by Robert Stuart, who was the 22-year-old son of Robert the Bruce's daughter Marjorie and so he was David II's nephew despite the fact that he was actually eight years older than him. Robert Stuart was the heir presumptive to the throne of Scotland. Now, what this meant was that in the event that David died without an heir, Robert Stuart would become king. And David II, he returned to begin his personal reign in June 1341 at the age of 17 years old. And his return was the final nail in the coffin for the dwindling support of Edward Balliol. David II, he wanted to restore his broken kingdom, which had been battered by over 50 years of war, but he also wanted to exact revenge on Edward III, and he set about doing this by taking his frustrations out on the north of England, kind of like Margaret Thatcher, I suppose. David II would launch raids into the north of England to try and disrupt Edward III, whose main forces were fighting in France, but in 1346, David II would push it a little bit too far, and one of his raids into the north of England would cost himself and his kingdom dearly. In August 1346, Edward III won another spectacular victory in France, and with the war not going well, the French king, Philippe VI, called upon the 1295 Treaty of Paris, the Old Alliance, or just the Alliance, it was known as that at that time, with Scotland, and he wanted the Scots to launch an invasion of northern England to distract English attention away from the war with France. And David II, he was happy to oblige, He'd already been carrying out raids on Northern England, and with the main bulk of the English forces fighting in France, it seemed like it was a shooty in The English—they were led by the Archbishop of York and some powerful Northern English magnates—who were able to muster an army of around fifteen thousand men to oppose the Scots. But David II wasn't particularly concerned about this English army. He dim- he dismissed the English army as miserable monks. And pig drivers, but those pig drivers were about to do an even better job of destroying the Scots than that pig fucker David Cameron did. The invading Scots met the English defenders at the Battle of Neville's Cross to the west of modern day Durham on the 17th of October 1346 and it would be yet another calamitous defeat for the Scots. The Scots Shilterns, they found themselves hemmed in by a ravine and they were yet again devastated by the English longbows. The Scots army had been arranged into three main Shiltern battalions, one of which was being commanded by Robert Stewart. And when the battle started to turn and seen the battle was not going well, Robert Stewart retreated from the battlefield unscathed and, and with his main supporters intact. His desertion left the king exposed and the English cavalry, which was led by Edward Balliol, swept in to finish the job. David II, he found himself encircled and he was captured under a bridge on the battlefield. And he, do you know what? He was lucky he was under a bridge and not on a tunnel because, you know, as we know, the English royal family are quite happy to take out troublesome royals in tunnels. And so David, he was captured, but apparently put up a, a hell of a fight before they could take him. He knocked out the teeth of one of his would-be captors before he was carted off to the Tower of London, where he would stay, David would stay, or he would remain a prisoner of the English for the next 11 years. Now, you're starting to understand why we don't talk about the Second Wars of Scottish Independence nearly as much as the first ones. Like, in the First Wars of Scottish Independence, we had this remarkable, incredible victory against the full might of the English army at Bannockburn, an impossible victory we were never supposed to win. And then, in the Second Wars of Independence, we had three battles we should have won easily, and we it up every single time. It is honestly like every single World Cup or World Cup qualifying campaign Scotland has ever been involved in. Go away and beat France and then get cuffed off of Georgia or Kazakhstan or someone shite like that. And after Neville Cross or the Battle of Neville Cross, the English, led by Edward Balliol, they overrun most of southern Scotland once again. But again... Balliol couldn't hold on to power. Edward Balliol was a spent force. He was an arse licker of the English monarchy with only lingering support in the southwest of Scotland. He was Rangers, basically. And Edward Balliol, he resigned his claim to the Scottish crown to Edward III in 1356 in exchange for a handsome pension. And he died in 1364. So he's not really like Rangers, you know, because they died in 2012. And with David II in captivity in England... Robert the Stuart run the Scottish government and he created a power base of earldoms and baronies through various marriage alliances and Robert's kind of footballer's wife method of gaining power through marriage alliances was very quickly making him by far and away the most powerful man in Scotland but his reputation after the Battle of Nebel Cross had taken a dent because of his perceived apparent cowardness and abandonment of the king on the battlefield. David II in the meantime was still stuck in the Ecuadorian embassy in London until a deal could be secured that would secure his release. In 1350 David II worked out a deal with Edward III that would see him released without a ransom but in exchange Edward III wanted his son John of Gaunt, who was not in line for the English crown, to become the heir presumptive. Meaning if David died without an heir, he would become the next king of Scotland. David was paroled to Scotland in on November 1351 to try and sell the deal to the Scottish Parliament. Just 30 years after his father had signed the Declaration of Arbroath stating that as long as but 100 of us remain alive, we shall never on any conditions be subjected to English rule. Here was his son trying to sell a deal to the Scottish Parliament that could very possibly see the Scottish Crown handed over to England. A huge turnaround made out of sheer desperation and an eagerness to re- remain relevant and in power, just like Boris Johnson's position on Europe. Now, unsurprisingly, when the Scottish Parliament met in, met in March 1352, the deal was rejected. Having an unknown English person as king was deemed completely unacceptable, not like now when we have random German people as monarchs, you know. Robert Stewart had packed the Parliament with his supporters and they were never going to back a deal that would see him replaced by John of Gaunt as the heir presumptive of Scotland. So in April 1352 David was returned to captivity in England. In 1354, there was another attempt at David II's release. and this time, there was no heir presumptive clause. Instead, a price of 90,000 merks would be paid and 20 Scottish nobles taken as security until the payment was secured. But once again, Robert Stuart would be the stumbling block for the deal. The deal was not only rejected by the Scottish Parliament, but they actually launched another attack on the north of England at the behest of France in 1355. The Scots army sacked Berwick and defeated an English army at the Battle of Nesbitt Moor fought at Dunns in the Scottish borders in August 1355. Edward III's retaliation for these attacks was a brutal invasion of the Lothians that became known as the Burke Candlemas in January 1356. And when Edward III won another crashing victory against the French in September 1356, it pacified the French and eliminated the chance of another Scottish attack at the behest of France as part of the old alliance. This made David's release more achievable as there wouldn't be another invasion into the north of England from Scotland. And so, in October 1357, David II was finally ransomed. He returned to his kingdom after 11 years of captivity in England. His ransom was a very hefty sum of 100,000 marks, a huge amount that would put a lot of pressure on the Scottish finances in the future. And a 10-year truce with England was negotiated as part of the ransom. But David's title as King of Scotland was not formally recognised by Edward III and Parts of Scotland still remained under English occupation. David II at this point was 33 years old. The country that he was the king of was in ruin after years of war, and it was under the financial pressure of his huge ransom payments to the English. And David may have been king, but Robert Stuart was still the most powerful man in the kingdom, too powerful for David to really challenge, and David wanted revenge against his nephew. I mean, it was Robert Stewart who had refused his ransom twice, and it was Robert Stewart who had abandoned him on the battlefield at Neville Cross. Now, the best way that David could exact revenge on Robert Stewart and curtail his power would be by producing an heir. If he could produce an heir, it would ensure that his nephew never had the chance to become king. David's Queen Joan, she had accompanied him on his return to Scotland but returned to England after a few weeks and she died childless In 1362, after Joan's death, it became apparent that David intended on making his mistress Margaret Drummond Queen. He showered the Drummond family with riches, land and titles, all at the expense of the Stuart-supporting barons. And it led to a rebellion of sorts in 1363, when a group of disaffected nobles petitioned the king complaining about his promotion of his favourites and the apparent misuse of funds for his ransom to fund his own pleasures. Stuart was undoubtedly involved in this rebellion, inverted commas, but realised early on that it was a lost cause, and he publicly renewed his fealty to David II. David married Margaret Drummond in February 1364 at Inch Murdoch in Fife, and, uh, you know, nothing says second marriage more than getting married at Inch Murdoch in Fife, folks. In the autumn of 1362, David travelled to England to try and renegotiate the terms of his ransom treaty. Edward III was willing to accept the end of ransom payments, but only if his son John of Gaunt was made heir presumptive of Scotland. Now, David's new wife, Margaret Drummond, she already had children, so he must have felt pretty confident that he could produce an heir. And Robert Stuart's standing at this point was at its lowest ebb. David II had set about dismantling the Stuart power base, and his reputation as a kind of disloyal lieutenant who had abandoned the king on the battlefield meant that the Scottish Parliament might just consider an English heir presumptive preferable to Robert Stuart. But once again, David II's hopes were shattered in March 1364 when the Scottish Parliament rejected the terms of the renegotiation. David now desperately needed to produce an heir. Robert Stewart, well, I mean, he certainly wasn't going to struggle in that department. Robert Stewart already had five sons, seven daughters and eight illegitimate children, which shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone. I mean, he was Robert Stewart. After all, he was Rod Stewart, the most fertile man in the kingdom. And when it became apparent that David II wasn't going to have a child with Margaret Drummond, he divorced her and he found a new queen, Agnes Dunbar, the niece of Agnes Randolph, the Black Agnes who had famously defended Dunbar Castle. David II proceeded on the same process as before, showering Agnes and her family with riches. But the most important thing was, of course, Agnes's fertility. David required a fertile partner, a Boris Johnson type of wife, if you will but it wasn't to be for David II. On the 23rd of February 1371, on what was practically the eve of his marriage to Agnes, David II died suddenly at Edinburgh Castle and he died without an heir. His greatest fear had become a reality. His nephew, Robert Stuart, was now King of Scotland, Robert II. Robert the Stuart had become King purely by out-surviving David which is presumably how a lot of Tory MPs were feeling when Boris Johnson got COVID. I mean, just rubbing their hands going, all I've got to do is outlast this prick, you know? So Robert Stuart was now Robert II and it marked the start of the Stuart dynasty, the longest ruling royal dynasty in British history. The Stuart monarchs would rule in Scotland for 513 years and the Stuart name, the Stuart monarchs, would become renowned for their unfortunate tragedies, remembered as a cursed royal family, the most successful Scottish royal dynasty were also the most doomed. And I'll tell you what, folks, it does not. Get more Scottish than that. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If this is the first episode of the Montebank History of Scotland podcast that you've listened to, then go back and listen to, the other, to some of the other episodes. It's the same thing. If you like this one, you'll like the rest of them as well. It's Scottish history with jobby jokes, basically. You'll enjoy it. Um you can contribute to the Montebank History of Scotland series by buying me the equivalent of the price the price of a cup of coffee. Just go on to buy me a coffee. And I'm on there at Montebank History of Scotland. Or you, become, uh, you can become a patron of the podcast at my Patreon account. So again, go on to patreon.com. And they there at Montebank History of Scotland. And what I try and do is each week, I try and raise enough money through those accounts to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. So if you would like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey, all you need to do is leave me a wee bit of money in those accounts. Um, or you can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Montebank Tours. You can send me a DM, leave a comment. And nominate someone to receive that bottle of whiskey and I basically just choose someone at random. And what I try and do is each week I try and I try and match what we've been talking about on the podcast with a malt whiskey here in Scotland. And I've decided to match the David II podcast with Cohoman, which is an Eilid whiskey that was... Uh, it's the newest distillery in Eilid. It was only launched in 2005. And the reason why I'm matching Cohoman with David II is because you already know... The Isley distilleries, the big boys, the William Wallaces, the Robert the Bruce's, you know, like your Lagavoolans and your Laphroigs, your Ardbegs. Well, Colchoman is a a smaller distillery, but it's a delicious dram that is deserving of your attention. And we probably are all guilty of not giving poor David II more attention as well. So that's why I've decided to match that. If you'd like to receive a bottle or you'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Colchoman, then you know what to do. Thanks so, so much for listening, folks. Please go on, give me a wee follow on social media, at Montebank Tours. Like the podcast, rate the podcast, tell a friend, do everything that folk tell you to do at the end of podcasts, basically. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope to see you all next time. Thank you very much, and cheery bye. Bye Bye-bye.